know that when things are going really wrong, when things are really desperate, actually, this was God's in God's sovereign world for me, is what he has allowed to happen. And it also says that in the Bible that we will not face anything that we're not, he hasn't prepared us for. I love that. I love the fact that, okay, so you've given me the tools to cope with this. And I, I love that he's the one, he's, he's the author of my salvation. Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Gilbo, and I am here with my good friend, Joanna Whittaker. Hello, Joanna. Hi there, Simon. And this is Inspired. So it's Inspired this week with Joanna Whittaker, and Joanna is the author of She's Just Alice, and we're going to be talking about Alice, and we're also going to be talking about Joanna's multiple sclerosis and her, her life in general, but some massive, massive stuff that she's come up against that she's very willing and open to talk about. So it's going to be moving. It's going to be a, a deep, poignant time today. And so let's get straight into it, Joanna. So, you know, tell us a bit about your faith journey. How did you come to faith? Well, um, it's always a long journey with everyone, how they come to faith. And I think my biggest thing was that my mother got ill. And although I'd been praying through my A-levels and making sure I was doing okay and making sure God was making up for the fact that I wasn't working, mm. actually the biggest thing for me was my mother getting cancer. And it was my second year of university and when I was meant to be having a really fun, fun time, which I was, but that sort of sent my world, world into free fall. Um, and that's really when I began to really properly, properly pray because I couldn't understand how she could so suddenly not be here. How could mm. this person who was my mother suddenly not be anywhere? And it didn't make sense that she would just vanish and that there could be no nothing. It just it didn't, it wasn't logical in my, in my mind. Um, but probably the the biggest thing was when I was traveling in Africa. I'd, I'd been on, on I'd been going to church a little bit with my mother. She'd become a Christian through her sister, my aunt. And the biggest thing was I was in Africa traveling. My mother was in remission, so everything looked sort of fine and everything's going to be normal and everything's great. And I was on a bus in Zimbabwe, and I remember looking out of the window and thinking, "Okay, okay, I know enough to know that Jesus was born." He died for our sins and he was raised from the dead. And I remember talking to him in my heart. It wasn't open at all. And I remember saying, okay, Lord, if you really are alive, that means that you really can talk to me now and you're really here. And I remember saying to him, Lord, if you are there, then I don't want to miss out. I don't want to get into my 90s and suddenly think, oh, I missed out on that for the whole of my life. And I remember praying really seriously in my heart. Okay, I really, do. I remember actually saying this in my heart. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care what it costs me. I want to know you. And I think that was the moment that my life changed, although I didn't know it at the time. It wasn't until I came home um, that it became that I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. So I was traveling and having the time of my life. And my father rang me in Thailand to say, you need to come home. Your mother's ill and jumped on a plane. And I remember seeing mummy for the first time having had this wonderful holiday in, in Africa, amazing experiences and seeing her and thinking, oh, my gosh, she's gone. I, I knew she'd already gone. I think she'd mm. lost hope. She didn't know what was really... She did, although she'd come to faith, she didn't have that assurance, that mm. deep down assurance that she was going to go and be with him. And I think I just knew suddenly that life was very, very serious and life was going to be over for her. She was deeply unhappy and I didn't know what to do. But when I was in Africa and I was traveling, when I'd, I'd given my life to Jesus and I was waiting for this Bible that my mother's sister had sent me. And everywhere we went, I went to these post-restaurant addresses. I don't know if anyone's been trying. I don't, they probably don't know, do it now because everything's online. But I was waiting for this Bible to arrive. And it kept sort of chasing me and I chase, was chasing it. I never got it. When I finally got it, the highlighted passages that my aunt had 
had highlighted was from Psalm 139. And I think that has been sort of very much part of my life. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. And if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Mm. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, and if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. And I think that for me, wherever I am, I know that. So wherever I am, he's there. And I think that's having the, the word of God in my hand all of a sudden meant it meant more to me than I knew. And so there I was at home and mommy was dying and I suddenly knew that she'd already gone. Mentally, she'd already gone. And she was desperate for her, for me and for her two sons to, to come to faith. I have two younger brothers. And she sent us on this sort of Bible weekend thing. Both the boys gave their lives to Jesus. And when I call mummy just to tell her, her lung collapsed and she was rushed into hospital. And she died two weeks later. And that was that was tough. But that was sort of the beginning, I think, of proper faith where I really, really knew, I really knew God's presence in my life. Mm. I haven't even told you about um, when I <laughs> when I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is a big thing. When we become Christians, for some people it's a slow move towards knowledge. And for me it was a dramatic light and dark, black and white. And I was talking to my aunt, she'd come to stay, and I'd just heard from the Macmillan nurse that mummy's cancer had spread to her brain. I was desperate, and I remember my aunt saying, when I was desperate as you are, I just had to trust God. And I went to bed that night thinking, well, I feel peaceful because I've told my Louise, and no wonder I'm feeling better. And I woke up the next morning, and suddenly I knew that Jesus was alive. I knew the Bible was true, and I, I was on an absolute, <laughs> I must have been a complete nightmare. Mm-hmm. I thought, it, I literally, I thought it had been on the news. It was so, so, so clear. <laughs> Technicolor. And it obviously wasn't, but there we go. So after your mum passed away, you then went to Bible school? I did. I suddenly realised I didn't really know anything about Jesus. Mm-hmm. I suddenly thought, hang on, I know a few stories, a few parables, but I really want to know what my faith is really based on. I had this faith that was so intense, but so based on nothing, really. Mm. So I thought, I'll go to Bible school and you know, sort of um, find out a little bit more about who he is. And that was brilliant. It taught me how to pray. And I think the biggest thing in that time, apart from the Bible school and friends and and a different life for me, I I was, I think I'd been in Bible school for about six months. And I remember being at home and getting on my knees and saying, okay, Lord, what is my life about? What, what is my purpose? I believe that We've all got a purpose, and hopefully most of us are, are living in that purpose, but sometimes we doubt it. And I and I wanted a promise for my life, and I prayed and prayed and prayed, and I heard I heard him say very clearly, Zechariah 7.4, and I didn't know my Bible very well at all, at all. I found it. And this one little tiny verse says, thus the word of the Lord came to me saying, and that's what it says. I remember thinking, gosh, is God really, is he really talking to me? And then I just, I got uh, verse after verse, and in total I got 56 verses in 10 chapters and four different books of the Bible, and it was unbelievable. He took me through it, and those were promises for my life. Mm. He told me I was going to have three children, although I didn't spot that at the time. It just didn't make sense to me. It just, it was so way out there. It just, I just recorded the words, um, typed it all out, put it in a book so that I would have a record of it, knowing that he had definitely spoken to me. Yeah, that was that was an unbelievable thing. And as my life has progressed, those words have suddenly come to mean something to me. Mm. They suddenly thought, oh, oh, that's what he meant. Oh, okay. And although they're relevant to the people in the Bible times, this was relevant to me. And I love the fact that God can talk to us through his word very personally. 
mm. in a time of poverty, in a time of rawness, in a time of desperation, then it can be just as powerful. I love that. I love that. Yeah. So then you get this absolute nightmare of a diagnosis of MS. How mm-hmm. did that hit you? Well, it had been creeping up on me, although I didn't know. It, I was very, very severely ill. And I thought, gosh, okay, so this is my life. This was all it was meant to be. I, I didn't think I'd live till I was 30. I couldn't walk. I couldn't see. had double vision, loss of balance, um, tingling all over my body. It was chronic, chronic, chronic. And I had a course of steroids and I got better. And I, took, I, I majorly changed my life. I stopped smoking, which is a secret I didn't. Um, and I tried to really improve my life and change. And I think, you know, physically. And I sort of, sort of got better, mostly got better. All those symptoms went. I occasionally had tingling hands, but nothing. But I think in terms of my faith, I sort of thought, okay, so life is short. I've got to make it count. I've got to make these, I thought at the time, some nine years work. I've got to make this really do something. But I didn't have a job. I wasn't a nurse. I wasn't anyone who could give anything to anyone. So I was sort of at a loss to what I should do. And then I ended up living with my dad. And it was a question of learning how to pray and just praying again. It's about relationship with Jesus. And I think it's so easy for me now to forget that actually it's a friendship with him, an unbelievable friendship with with the God who loves us, who wants to know us. And I think that for me has held me so strongly in everything I've lived that actually he's walking with me. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that for me has just been it's been a relationship with the Lord which has just got better and better and stronger and stronger and I've become more, more and more dependent. When I was first a Christian, lots of people used to say to me, well, isn't this a crutch? And I used to be very <laughs> very defensive. No, it's not a crutch. Of course it's not a crutch. He's not a crutch. No, I can I, I can manage on my own. And I realise now, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's a wheelchair. He's my wheelchair. Mm. You know when you said, that you didn't think you get the age of 30. That's funny because I used to say that all the time. Whenever I was preaching, I said, I never thought to get the age of 30. I never thought I'd get married and have kids and I'm still here. And so it's interesting (laughs) for those of us who've faced the very likelihood of our impending death, it completely changes your perspective, doesn't it? It sharpens you. It does. It makes you realize what really matters. People matter. Stuff doesn't matter. Sharing your, your hope matters. Um, not getting caught up in a new carpet fitting or extension, whatever, you know, people get consumed with things that really don't matter at all. I love the C.S. Lewis quote, mm. anything which isn't eternal is eternally out of date. It's, we're not mm. going to take it with us. And uh, people mm. can get so distracted, can't they? So, you yeah. know, I, I'm sure you don't, well, maybe you do. I don't, I don't think you do. Do you say I'm glad for MS because of what it's taught me? I mean, how do you respond on that one? <laughs> I Maybe I'm working towards that. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said I'm glad for it. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Remember the verses that really kept me safe was Job. And he said, though he slay me, yet I hope in him. Mm. And I love that, that complete and utter. I knew that. I, and I knew that in reality, and I hope that doesn't happen, happen to everyone. But if it does happen to you, you know that even though he slays us, I will, I, we can hope in him. Yeah. Because there is a future. There is a hope. There, this isn't everything. And that's for, for me when mommy was dying. I thought, no, this can't be everything. And I now know with such surety, and especially having lost my daughter, and I know we're going to get onto that, but I know that that wasn't it. That wasn't her little life. That wasn't everything. Mm. That actually there's so much more. But it's, just, it's just a shame we can't see it. Mm. It'd be, and this is, I suppose, faith. It's faith in, in knowing that it's going to be different. And knowing that I'm going to see my mother again, knowing that I'm going to see my daughter again. Oh my gosh, my precious, precious daughter. And knowing that that wasn't everything. Yeah. And I think that we can all reach to and 
have faith in and when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and the Bible says pray continually pray for the infilling of the Holy Spirit and it's something I should do more of because that's him who brings the presence of Jesus the reality of him to us and then and then it makes everything seem a lot better mm. yeah so that MS diagnosis meant that you didn't think you'd ever get married but what happened yeah. what started on Victoria Station <laughs> well so I had prayed very, okay, I pray. And I, I had said to the Lord, okay, listen, I, I talk frankly, slightly irreverently to him sometimes, but I say, okay, listen, if I'm meant to get married, I don't want it to be a simple thing. I want this to be absolutely, completely miraculous. I need it to be absolutely, so there's no doubt in my mind. So I was on Victoria Station in my outfit for blind balls in black tie. And I was introduced with, from one of the people I was taking to a chap that he bumped into on the train station, also in black tie. And this chap turned out to be my husband. <laughs> just, mm. And it was a, a series of bizarre, bizarre occurrences. Uh, it turns out that this chap, David's flatmate, I had met the year before. And then when I went around for dinner for the first time, I bumped into a friend, well, somebody I knew from school, as well as a couple I knew from, well, they're Londoners, but I met them in Kenya. The whole thing was bizarre. And I remember sitting at, in this little room in David's flat and thinking, okay, this is peculiar. This mm. is definitely strange. And then getting a bit paranoid. I didn't talk to David all night. Uh, I just thought, this is too freaky. And then left. And then he invited me out again. And we went out for dinner, just the two of us. And after the evening, I, I had a lovely, lovely dinner. I remember it was a beautiful night and lovely soft rain. And it was a warm, warm summer. I remember I was waiting for the taxi and he was hailing the taxi. And anyway, he, I, I got in the taxi and I didn't. We, we didn't really talk. Nothing happened. And I got in the taxi. I remember saying to the driver, I, I think I've just met my husband. Wow. Which is a really peculiar thing to say or even think. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it's not like anything had happened remotely. Anyway, so there we go. It was a sort of, it was a God-ordained meeting for both yeah. of us. And we know that now having been through what we've been through. Yeah. And my link with your husband, David, is that he was my dorm group leader when I was an <laughs> obnoxious 15-year-old teenager. And he was so good at coming alongside me and sort of taming me and calming me a bit. There were actually discussions in the leader's room about, because I was so unruly about giving me about my own Simon. room by putting me in isolation because <laughs> at three in the morning, we were still smashing over the head with a pillow. And uh, <laughs> and so they were going to, oh, Gilbo, hopeless cause. Anyway, so David uh, came, that's where, that's our link essentially, isn't it? And that's how we got in touch. Yes, and that's where, yes. where our friendship comes from. So yes. for, for you, when you got married, you know, that was always hovering in the background, wasn't it? Well, it's a, a very clear, well, we only met six times before we got engaged. It was very, very quick. And I kept trying to run away and he kept running after me. And I kept saying, and I, and I said to him very frankly, uh, probably the fourth time I met him, I said, David, you know I have MS. And he says, I do. And so then I took him to the MS Society in, in London. And I said, listen, you need to see what this actually means. Uh, he needed to know. And this is, for me, it was a very real issue. And he still, <laughs> it didn't put him off, which is, which is a, again, a miraculous thing. So, um, so yeah, so I wanted him to be absolutely 100% eyes open. Mm. And it has made it easier now. I mean, I'm, I'm quite quite seriously d disabled now, and I think, well, however awful it is, it has made it easier for me to know that he chose me, yeah. knowing this might happen. Mm. And for him, none of us, we both hope for better, but we're here now and we were, went in with open eyes. And I think in life, I think that's one thing in everything, to be aware of what's, to just be eyes wide open yeah. and not um, put things under the carpet. Mm. 
So let's fast forward uh, a number of years now because you've had two healthy boys. They are now, so Ben's at uh, Edinburgh University yeah. and Matthew's uh, lower sixth, all right, and, yeah. and, and then you get pregnant uh, with Alice. Well, before then, so they were only three and five and um, I got pregnant and I really hadn't expected to get pregnant. I was trying to be quite careful because I, didn't, I knew I had MS and I wanted to, I, you know, I thought I was very, very blessed so far. I had two healthy children and I was coping and I was perfectly well and I got pregnant and I remember being absolutely devastated. And it was a, a peculiar feeling as a Christian to know that this, this, was a, this is a gift. I'm pregnant. Oh my gosh, what a blessing. And yet to think, oh gosh, I don't want this. I don't want this child. Mm. That's a terrible, terrible admission. You know, I really didn't want her. And I was, I remember I was, there was once when I was in the kitchen just stirring the kids' food and cooking them. And I, I always feel well when I'm pregnant. You, you, you know, I, I feel really well. And I, I was just weeping and weeping and weeping and just saying, God, I can't do it. I can't do it. There's no way I can do this. I, I, you know, please, I probably even pray, please take the child from me. I just, you know, and as I was praying and, Lifting my eyes to him, I felt him clearly say, so clearly to me, he said, this is my child. I carried it on the cross. It's mine. And and then from literally from that moment on, I was filled with this inexplicit, well, it's not inexplicable, but it was unbelievable happiness mm. and joy and excitement and that I was going to have another child. And it was peculiar. It was, it was like being born again again mm. it's like oh it was darkness to light it's like oh my gosh yes 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 she's i didn't know if she was a she then this child's meant to be and it was very very exciting and yeah i fell in love with this unborn child totally totally in love with her and so you gave birth everything was fine when did you start realizing that maybe things weren't so fine so she was about a year old she's beautiful little girl beautiful beautiful girl perfect girl looked very like her eldest brother and I was carrying her down the stairs and I suddenly felt her head loll on my shoulder. She'd just woken up, so she was tired, but I felt it loll unnaturally on my shoulder. I thought, okay, this is this is not this is not normal. So I spoke to the doctor, we got an appointment to see a, a pediatrician, and David came with me, and it was then that I knew that, you know, he said he did some tests on her and he could see that she wasn't developing normally or in this in the correct sort of way. And um, I came home that day knowing that something strange was up with Alice and I hadn't spotted it. And that for me was, as a very diligent mother, I, I thought, gosh, I can't believe I didn't spot that. And I remember I went outside, floods of tears, and I went inside and sort of mopped up with the tears and went into the kitchen and Ben was in there and he said, hey, mum, what's wrong? And I tried to cover everything up in a, a, a stupid way. And I said, um, oh, Ben, we've just heard that Alice might not develop normally. She she just she might not walk. I don't know what's wrong with her, but she's not normal. And Ben looked at me with this sweet, innocent face of a five-year-old said, Mummy, Mummy, she's just Alice. Mm. And that's why I called my book that, because those words kept me so safe in the years that we had her. Because I kept remembering, yes, she's just how she's meant to be. God said that he was she was his child, and now my son was saying, She's just how she should be. And it was very sobering. I just thought, you're so right, Ben. You're so right. Just could not have been more pertinent. They were just so perfect for me because I know that when things are going really wrong, when things are really desperate, actually, this was God's in God's sovereign world for me. Not his perfect world, not, not the things he'd want to happen, but it's, it's what he has allowed to happen. And it also says that in the Bible that we will not face anything that we're not, he hasn't prepared us for. 
And I think I love that. I love the fact that, okay, so you've given me the tools with it to cope with this. And I, I love that he's the one, he's, he's the author of my salvation. So can you explain in layman's terms what was wrong? Well, the, the strange thing is, Simon, we never found out. We went everywhere to find out. I mean, I spent nine months coming up and down to London from Rutland on a train with my daughter. And, oh, gosh, it was, it was very, very, very tough. We went to America to see if we could find out what she might have been born with, whether it was a genetic issue. So they did multiple tests all in one week. It was five days, and it was absolutely brilliant. They did everything. And they, if there had been anything wrong with her, they would have found out. And even to the last few weeks of her life, they were still trying to work out what it was, and they never found out. Mm. So we had no, no diagnosis, no prognosis, no nothing. And that was very, very hard for me. It t- taught me a lot about trust, and I think probably... I was allowed to live that because when she died, it was the biggest lesson in trust. Biggest, biggest, biggest lesson in trust to be able to trust him that that she wasn't just going to disappear. She was going to be with him. He was going to take her. So you were down in the West Country in Bath and things slowly deteriorated. Is that right? Yeah, that is that is right. We'd moved from Rutland to Bath because I couldn't get her into a school where they would have me with her and I didn't want to leave her alone. I, because she didn't talk, she couldn't communicate in any, any reasonable way. I, knew, I could sort of read her as her mother and I'd spend all my time with her. So I knew exactly what she was feeling. So I needed to be with her. We found this school in Bath, which was brilliant. And she, would, she could be with me, I could be with her. And also I could send one of her, I got a group of tutors together as part of her learning how to communicate with us. And so that was that was amazing, Bath. And I thought we I thought they'd be able to figure out what was wrong. I thought they'd be able to to just unlock. I just always had that hope they'd be able to somebody would be able to unlock unlock her. And it didn't happen. But one day, one day, <laughs> one day I'll be with her again, and, mm. and we can talk. And I, when she was very seriously ill in hospital, where she we went to because she developed epilepsy, and then she was not, never diagnosed as epileptic again. A very strange thing that. You know, she she had fits like proper epileptic fits, and yet every time we had the EEG to sort of confirm this, it came out not conclusive or not even definitely not epileptic. And that was really really hard to, to fathom. And once she was mid fit and she was having this grant me this test, and I thought, well, definitely, definitely, they'll be able to spot it now. And it came out blank, and I that was unbelievably hard to try and figure out what on earth does this mean. And of course, we pray a lot for her and pray for her healing and a belief in healing. And But some people aren't healed. I'm not healed. I've still got MS. And so in all that, you just, again, trust, trust. Who is our Father? Who is our Lord? Is he good? And I think I had a lot of questions from friends of mine saying, well, how, how can you equate this with a good God? And these are eternal questions that I don't know if we'll ever be adequately able to answer here on earth. I just know his love. I know that he held me. And he held Alice and he was there for our children. Our boys were unbelievable, mm. unbelievable at this time. They knew exactly when to be quiet, when to do things for her, when to collect things, when to help me. They were just unbelievably, they were my little, my little angels. Mm. They never, they were very selfless in that time. Um, since she's gone, <laughs> she's a very good, good influence on our family. Since she's gone, it's perhaps, perhaps not so so clear now than you know, these um, teenagers wanting exactly what they want, when they want it. Mm. <laughs> they know exactly what we should do to help them with their problems. But anyway, she was she was a great leveller for us for mm. that time that she was with us. She was really 
fantastic person in our family to say, hey, what's important? What is really important? Mm. And if it's not too painful, can you talk us through the last days? Yes. Uh, um, she was in hospital for about six months. Um, we had started off in Bath Hospital and um, and then we went to Bristol where I thought that they would, we tried to get to Bath. We had spent a month trying to get there and the specialist kept saying, no, 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 don't worry. No, we're doing everything that Bristol would do. And I kept thinking, no, no, but Bristol have got the top, top, top paediatricians. They'll be able to figure it out. And she's still fitting. I mean, horrendous, horrendous fits. Awful. I mean, things you wouldn't wish anyone to have to witness. Mm. And this is my daughter. It's, oh, I mean, it's just truly, truly horrific. And we get to Bristol and she has four weeks there. So it was, I think it was five months altogether in hospital. So one month in Bath, four months in in Bristol. And her fits got worse and worse and worse and worse. And we were staying overnight. And by the time we got to Bristol, we couldn't do it anymore. It was too far for me to drive, to drop the boys off at school and then to drive to Bristol. So uh, the, her tutors would come and sleep with her and they could record how many fits she was having. And basically it was it was probably 100 a day or more. Mm. And it was really, really shocking. And the drugs we were having to give her started not working. And then... There was one day um, David had left in the morning. He was going off for on a very unusual five days um, on a work sort of thing. It was golfing, but it was also work. It was very important to us. And his job was very important to us. We, we needed the money to help with Alice and her care and all the extra expenses we had. And um, he left in the morning at home and, and he said, you're going to be okay. And I said, no, it's fine. Look, it's absolutely fine. I'll be fine. And I go into the hospital and I see that the pediatrician comes in and first thing and has a look at Alice and he says oh I'll just I'll pop in this afternoon on my on my way back and I thought gosh that's that's really strange why would he say pop in he'd never ever done that before never had two visits one day and I remember I, I saw my alarm bells went off and I rang David and I said David you've got to come back I'm really really sorry something's happened I don't know what's happened something's happened and he came back and we had a sort of you know few hours waiting for for the doctor to come back and then he said listen she's uh really sorry but she's got pneumonia and we've tried everything we've tried every drug possible and it's not getting better and she she will die and that was just like oh gosh we'd been preparing to come home with her everything had been delivered at home we had a hoist we had specialist bed everything had, was gradually being filled up at home with all the things that we were using in hospital now that she was so much worse mm -hmm. and suddenly we were told that she wasn't coming home she's actually going to die and that was horrendous horrendous i never ever thought Sorry, I just never thought I'd have to live through this. I never thought in a million years that this would happen to me. You know, you just, you live through a mother dying, you live through MS, and then to have a disabled daughter, that's hard enough, hard enough, hard enough for all those women out there that don't know God, so hard, so hard. But then to be told she wasn't going to live, it's like, no, 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 and then, God meets us where we are. He meets our need. And I remember saying to David, don't worry, it's going to happen. It's going to happen perfectly. I know when she goes, it's going to happen perfectly. And it doesn't really help, but it was it was five days of waiting for her to die. We got the boys out of school. They came to the hospital. They slept in the hospital. The last hospital were brilliant. They found a room for the boys to stay with my father. My father was sort of managing that, you know, them and the situation a bit. And he was there for me as well as for the kids and do you know what's so weird? As I knew that the day that she died would be a very, very important day for me, 
And I was busy trying to find out why, what date could it be? And what, what's, is it I calculate the amount of days she'd lived? And I was really, I just knew the day she was going to die was, was going to mean something. I couldn't find anything. I sort of gave up in the end. I looked at my verse, verses that God had given me and um, all that, all those years ago when I was 21. And there's nothing in there to say that she'd go. Um, he told me in those verses, I he told me I'd have three children. I think I said at the beginning. And on the third child, when he mentioned the third child, he doesn't say anything other than, um, but he changed the name on the third child. And that was, that was something that I thought, well, that's odd. Anyway, the day that she died, I was sleeping in her bed and I was, had her in my arms and David was sleeping on the, on, on the bed beside me, just by the pull-out bed. And um, the nurse who was managing it, she was a nurse from the ICU and um, she woke me to say she's going because she could tell from the breathing and things. Mm. And so I jumped out of bed, woke David and we sat beside her. And we, was, we were expecting about 20 minutes and then uh, she died in two breaths. And I looked around to... To Francis, the the nurse, I said, is, "Is she gone?" She said, "Yeah, she's gone." Gosh, it's just so weird. It's so weird to talk about it because I feel so healed, and yet talking about it, I think maybe <laughs> maybe I've got to do a lot more crying. I'm not sure. Mm. It's just I think going back that I think what was helpful for me writing the book was it felt like she was with me, and I felt really close to her. And I've written all about this in the book. Mm. You know, I felt. I felt she was right. And I love the fact that I have a book now of her character. Yeah. So it means that it, it, may, it makes me feel like I've got my three children with me, mm. even though it's just, it's just you know, words and text. And we can know something of her as well and people that didn't get to meet her because she was such a fabulous person, wasn't she? Oh, she was amazing. So, so then we pack up, we, we change her, we get her dressed, she, we take her to the, to, to be prepared for, you know, prepare for the undertakers. And, um, we got home and I called a friend of mine up and I said, I told her, and she, she just, she gasped and she said, oh, China, it's Father's Day. Mm. I said, what do you mean? She said, it's Father's Day today. She said, oh, poor David, poor David. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> forget poor David. That means this is a special day. This is Father's Day. He's her father. You know, and I, it, it, and I don't want to be unsympathetic to David being her father, but then I suddenly realised, oh, oh, he's sending me a message. It's a message that he's her father. He's she's mm. going to be with him, and that was that was just amazing, amazing. Beautiful. You know, as she died in your book, you include a poem, a beautiful poem called "What Is Dying." Have you got it there? I have. Yes, I have. Do you want to read it out to us? Sure. I'm going to really try not to cry now. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. What is dying? I am standing on the seashore. A ship sails in the morning breeze and starts for the ocean. She is an object of beauty and I stand watching her till at last she fades on the horizon and somewhere, someone at my side says, she is gone. Gone? Where? Gone from my sight, that is all. She is just as large in the masts, hulls and spars as she was when I saw her and just as able to bear her load of living freight to its destination. The diminished size of the total loss of sight is in me not in her. And just at that, the moment when someone at my side says, she is gone, there are others who are watching her coming. And other voices take up a glad shout. There she comes. And that is dying. That's beautiful, beautiful. I love that. I love that. It says somewhere, doesn't it, that they, the, the saints in heaven will clap and cheer, mm. you know, yeah. when we come. Yeah. I'm thinking of uh, scriptures like... Um... 
for example, Paul writing in 1 Thessalonians, is it 4 verse 13, where he says, so you do not grieve in the same way as others who have no hope. Isn't that right? Mm -hmm. And you, yeah, you talk exactly. about that, don't you, that how your faith is so utterly crucial to you because, well, otherwise it, it can be completely bleak and hopeless, can't it? Mm -hmm. I don't know how people do it without God. I don't know how you do it. I, I, I couldn't have done it without him. I couldn't, I couldn't live today without him. I think I'd, I'd be a gibbering wreck. Now, I've looked on um, Amazon uh, to see some of the reviews from She's Just Alice. And She's Just Alice would be a great book for you listeners to give to someone who's gone through something similar in terms of how Joanna's processed her journey. And this is one of the reviews. It says, my own daughter is severely disabled and is sadly no longer with us. Thank you, Joanna, for your bravery and honesty in sharing your story. I identified with so many of the scenarios you have so beautifully described in this wonderful book. You've achieved a well-balanced representation of both the joys and trials of this type of life journey. So it hits the spot for a number of people, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I really hope so. It took a long time to write it. Um, I spent, I knew very soon after Alice died, I wanted to write something. And, and then it got six years off, she died, and I kept thinking, I can't keep saying to people I'm going to write a book and then not do it. So I finally got down to writing it and I loved it. I loved writing it. I, I really felt I wanted to do it from a pace, place of strength and, and real peace. And I, I hope that that's what's come across, you know, that actually this is a time that is for, is for joy. This is time for actually one day, one day it's all going to be okay. It's like knowing you're going to go and get something from prize from school and knowing it's going to come and you're waiting to get it you're waiting to get it you finally get called up and you get not that i ever got a prize at school <laughs> mind you but <laughs> i imagine i imagine that's how it feels it's like i know that one day i'm going to be with her again and i can't wait it doesn't mean i i want it to go i love my life here i love my marriage i love my family i love my children very 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 much and it's important for me now to focus on the here and now Mm. And that not to focus on what's coming is very important now to make the most of what we've got. And that's been a, quite an important thing for me to realise, actually. It's, an, it's about today. It's about now. It's about who, who I have around me, mm. not the what if. Yeah. And Christian, but Christian hope is so all-encompassing. I mean, it's the drive. It's the bedrock of my life. I, I, I often sort of quote people like I, I love the confidence of the saints faced with you know because lots of people are afraid to die I think massively during this COVID time uh, mm. loads of people even Christians are afraid to die and we don't need to be it's um where is it in Hebrews 2 the 14 15 it talks about Jesus by his death he breaks the power of him who holds the power of death that, that's the devil and he mm. frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death so as you're listening and I think part of the inspiration for me of Jonah's story is her utter confidence in where she's going, the reality of eternity, that we have the choice to, to, to either embrace Jesus' offer and be with him forever or, or, or turn away. And that's, those, those are high stakes, aren't there? And, and Christians, we're not saying we're any better than anyone else, but we're just better off because we know that we've been forgiven, we've been reconciled. And so we can, we can echo the likes of F.B. Meyer, who, a famous old Christian years ago. He, you know, he, he penned these words just before... He, he knew he was dying. He, he wrote this to a friend. I've raced you to heaven. I'm just off. See you there. You know, I love that. Or William Haslam, who's a famous 19th century preacher. 
you know, he was conducting a service one day and he was summoned by the message, your father's dying, what, what, you need to come as quickly as possible. And when he arrived at his dad's house, he was told, you know, it's too late, your father's dead. But he, he approached his father and spoke tenderly about God's loving kindness. And his father smiled dreamily at the name of Jesus and said, not, not dead, just beginning to live. I love that. Not dead, just beginning to live. And <laughs> you, you, you probably read the C.S. Lewis, you know, in the last battle. I love it. It's the sort of glimpse that we have of everlasting joy. He writes, the term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's our, our inheritance and that's our, our sort of birthright, isn't it? That we, that, I mean, it's not just life everlasting, you know, once we die, but that does start here and now. And that's what even in your brokenness and, and sort of physical uh, challenges that you're, you're seeking to live out, isn't it? Mm, definitely, definitely. I, I think I said to you quite not very long ago that we only have one life. This is my one life. I wanted to make it count. This is, and this is like preparation for the, for the real life to come. Mm. This is our sort of staging post. You know, we're about to set off on what we're really meant to be for. I don't know what I'm meant to be for, but I'm sure it's not what I'm doing now. I'm sure it's not sitting in a wheelchair or trying to walk around the garden by two sticks and not fall over. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure that's not my total life. Mm. And whenever I do do that, and whenever I do fall over, which I do an awful lot, it's actually, it's okay, because this isn't what it's going to be like for eternity. I have an eternal body, and it'll, it'll, my body will be changed, and I will be like him, and that's just mind-blowing. Mm. It's absolutely, and it does keep me safe because I think, okay, so I can't, so what's the point of moaning? What is the point of moaning? Come on, it's just for a time. I remember there's a verse that says, you're light and momentary troubles. You know, mm. you know, give praise for anything. These are just light and momentary troubles. I remember driving into the hospital to see Alice and being devastated, devastated, terrible, terrible time and thinking, okay, Lord, I don't see what is light or what is momentary about these. This is not, this is mm. not light. This is not momentary. And yet eternally it is. Eternally that is a truth. Because it is gone now. That trauma and that awful time has gone. She's 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 dead. I'll see her again. She's got a new body. Gosh, she's got a new body. She can talk. I used to joke with her in hospital. I used to say to her, Alice, one day, one day, you'll be able to say to me, Mummy, you know that story you wrote to me, read to me, and that you said was really funny and really like really nice? Mummy, it really was quite boring. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay, Alice, but please be nice with me. If you're going to say something like that, please just say it nicely. <laughs> so, you know, one day we'll see. One day we'll see. We will. Now we know in part, then we know fully. Yes. And uh, we'll be fully known. And that's, yeah, that's our eternal hope. So as we come into land, how has this impacted your MS? Um, I think it's hard to know with MS. I mean, I was, I was well until Alice was about six months. And then I began to have problems with one of my legs, but it didn't, I was still walking. I was still, it was still able to do everything. And no, I didn't tell the boys until after she died, until after we'd moved to Berkshire. I only told them when I was, began to get really ill when I was living in Berkshire. So they didn't know. So it, so it was, although I knew that it was in the background, it didn't really play a part in my life. And it's been, I so I don't know how much her death, her disability, the work that workload I had was enormous. I don't know if that's impacted my my MS, I don't know. It's 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 not great now, and it's it's sad because suddenly Dave and I have time together, and now I can't go and play golf with him, which I would would have done. 
I can't go for walks with them, which I would love to do. I can't join in the family ping pong table games. For me, that's such a shame. I would have liked to have had some years here where I could actually enjoy mm. enjoy life. So it's a big impact uh, on our family, without a doubt. I think for David particularly, although he's very good about it, you know, he had a disabled daughter who died. Now he's got a wife who's, who's pretty disabled. It's like, gosh, that's tough. That's tough for him. Mm. And he, he wears it very lightly, frankly. Mm. He doesn't wear it very lightly. And in a respectful way, it's not like he's casual about it. He's, he carries it you know, without getting angry or upset. He's, he's mature. Mm. And how has it affected and how would you describe your faith now? Um, my faith, gosh, it just goes from strength to strength. I, mean, I love humour. And that's my problem about my book was I wanted to make it, I wanted to have funny things in this as well, which I hope I have done. Because actually, I think life is about laughter as well. It's about mm. joy. It's about fun. So I think my faith is, is definitely stronger. I love talking about Jesus. I love talking to my friends. I have Most of my friends aren't Christians. And I love that because I love them. I love them. Mm. And I love the fun that you can have in God and in faith without being too... I don't like to be religious. I think I think that's can be quite damaging. I, I imagine, when I imagine Jesus, I imagine he used to have a laugh with his, his disciples. Mm. I imagine, as well as the seriousness of it, I imagine he was fun to be with. Yeah. And I think that's important that we don't lose that joy. It says the joy of the Lord is my strength. Mm. Well, Joanna, we'll call it a day there. That's a great way to end. I love it that you have still got joy. You still got laughter in you and you're a great fun person to be around. And I'm grateful for you in my life. And I would love your story to be an encouragement, an inspiration, a challenge, a, a hope bringer to many people. And I think many of us will have been listening to this and we just think someone, my sister, my brother, my cousin, my colleague needs to hear this. So do forward it to them. That it could be a blessing to them. And so in closing, why don't you buy a copy of She's Just Alice by Joanna Whitaker? Read it for yourself. Give it to someone you know who will minister to. And uh, you can get in touch with Joanna through the various social media platforms. Joanna, it's been a real pleasure. God bless you so much. Thanks a lot. Toodaloo. Hey, thanks, Simon. Bye. Bye, Bye. all. Bye.